Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jacob Steginger. He is a reader in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. He has published widely on fundamental topics in reasoning and rationality and philosophical problems in medicine and biology, and today we're going to focus on these last ones. He is the author of Medical Nihilism and Care and Cure, an Introduction to Philosophy of Medicine. So, Dr. Steginger, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for having me on the show. Okay, great. So, uh, let's start with the basic question. I've already had some philosophers of medicine on the show, but I think it's better for us to address this question to start off with. What is philosophy of medicine and what are the sorts of questions that philosophers of medicine are interested in? Okay, so philosophy of medicine is the study of philosophical problems underlying medicine that can be medical research or medical practice. Um, that answer, though, raises this question about like what is a philosophical problem? <laughs> um, and in general, the way I like to think about what philosophy is all about is the study of relatively fundamental or important questions for which we can't directly use empirical means to answer them. Um, so for example, like, is lying always wrong? There's a big moral question. We can't just run an experiment and test it out to get evidence for that question. So that's what a philosophical problem is. And it turns out that in medicine, there are many such philosophical problems. So philosophy of medicine is research and teaching on those questions. Mm -hmm. And you asked, what are some of those questions? Um, so probably one of the biggest questions in philosophy of medicine has been, um, what is the general nature of disease? So some philosophers of medicine have tried to come up with philosophical theories of disease because clearly one of the main activities of medicine is diagnosing diseases, like token instances of disease, and intervening on those diseases. And so we want to know uh, what are the proper targets of um, diagnosis and intervention? What are the kinds of conditions which um, medicine is appropriately um, in the business of dealing with? So that's one big, big question for philosophers of medicine. In the last generation of philosophers of medicine, another big question has been about uh, what kinds of evidence is important or necessary for making inferences about the effectiveness of medical interventions. So, of course, a lot of medicine is about you know, giving, say, pills to people to make them feel better. And uh, a huge amount of research, scientific research, goes into testing whether or not those interventions are effective. And there's a wide variety of kinds of evidence available for interventions. And we wanna know what kinds of evidence do we really need to reliably make inferences about interventions? So that's another big, big question, philosophy of medicine. There are political questions in philosophy of medicine. So for example, um, we want to know um, how healthcare systems should be structured, like should, is the best kind of healthcare system that which the United Kingdom has, what the United States has, Canada has, um, and how should research resources be distributed? Like, should we just let private companies do whatever they want with research resources, or should we try to structure the distribution of research resources in a more efficient way? So there are all sorts of conceptual questions, and methodological questions, and political questions in philosophy of medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's all very interesting, and we're going to address some of those questions today. But before that, was there a specific date or period where philosophy of medicine started? I mean, is it old? Is it a recent branch of philosophy, or what exactly? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so some of the questions that philosophers of medicine today deal with have always been a part of philosophy generally. So for example, um, one big question is, um, what is death and should we fear death? And to what, to how, how much should we work to avoid death? You know, these were questions that the, that ancient Greek philosophers were asking. And these are still questions today that, that some philosophers of medicine are, are worried about. So in terms of the kinds of questions we're asking, some of them are very old. Um, but as a profession, as a discipline, it's a relatively young subdiscipline of philosophy. So philosophy is carved up into a few major subdisciplines. Philosophy of science is one of the dominant subdisciplines in philosophy. And philosophy of medicine is a kind of sub-subdiscipline of philosophy of science. And if I had to put a date on it, I would say that philosophy of medicine kind of got going in the 1970s, um, but certainly wasn't like philosophy of medicine courses weren't widely being taught in Western universities. Um, philosophy departments weren't hiring philosophers of medicine until you know maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and then journals popped up and um, universities wanted to hire philosophers of medicine. Um, so the discipline is really kind of young and just sort of starting to crystallize now. So for example, there haven't been very many textbooks in philosophy of medicine. Um, that's one sign that some discipline has become a, uh, become its own little sub-discipline. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's address some specific questions now. To start off with, uh, what is evidence from the perspective of medicine and philosophy of medicine? There's evidence, okay, so yeah there's one really general way to understand this question and then we can kind of zoom in a bit so i mean evidence in general is just some putative fact which speaks for or against some other putative fact um so um i look outside i see some clouds that's evidence that it might rain later right so there's the existence of the clouds is a putative fact, and then the future rain is another putative fact. So just any sort of putative fact that speaks for some other putative fact. In, in medicine, of course, um, evidence plays a bunch of different roles. So physicians, when they're diagnosing uh, 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 the existence of some disease, uh, um, physicians appeal to signs and symptoms to make that diagnosis. Those signs and symptoms are evidence for the existence of some disease. But in medical research, the, the main function of evidence is to uh, speak for or against some medical intervention, which, be, which is under investigation. So we've got some new drug. We want to know, does this drug do blah, blah, blah? Will this drug lower my blood pressure or lower my depression severity or whatever? And we want to get evidence for that. Um, and what counts as reliable evidence for questions like that has been a matter of quite some controversy. Mm -hmm. Right. Is it the case that all medicine is based on evidence or at least what we could call, let's say, mainstream or traditional medicine? Because we also have alternative medicine, but that, I mean, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think we could say that it's not really based on evidence, but medicine in general, is it based on medicine or not? Yeah, so, so right. So it's a good question. And again, I think it depends, like the, the right answer to that question depends on how broadly, broadly we want to define evidence. So if we take that really broad definition that I just gave, like some putative fact that speaks for some other putative fact, then of course, mainstream Western medicine is based on evidence. So if some physician uh, thinks that, you know, some physician goes to medical school uh, and then has 30 years experience in treating patients of a particular kind, that experience is the accumulation of a bunch of putative facts that speak for or against a bunch of different kinds of interventions. That physician has accumulated a bunch of evidence for the effectiveness of these various interventions that he's now using. 
Um, so that's one kind of evidence. One thing that's happened in medicine, uh, especially towards the end of the 20th century, was the rise of the so-called evidence-based medicine movement. And what this movement was arguing was that many kinds of evidence that have, that have been important in medicine, like this accumulation of wisdom uh, from this you know, particular physician, many kinds of evidence in medicine have been unreliable. That's what the, this evidence-based medicine movement was arguing. They were saying, if we really wanna know if some intervention in fact does blah, 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 like this drug lowers my blood pressure, then we need very particular kinds of evidence, not just like the, the accumulation of clinical expertise, not um, making inferences based on background theory of the disease or the intervention, but rather, said the evidence-based medicine movement, we need to test interventions using randomized control trials. This is like a very particular study design that's meant to block the threat of various kinds of biases. Um, so the leaders of the evidence-based medicine movement in the 1980s and 1990s said um, a lot of so-called evidence in medicine is shot through with biases. And that means that our inferences about the reliability or the effectiveness of these interventions is, are, are dodgy. Um, so there is this big movement, the evidence-based medicine movement, and that raises this question, well, isn't all, evidence isn't all medicine based on evidence? And it depends on how exactly how one, how broadly one defines evidence. Um, according to the evidence-based medicine movement, we should only admit evidence of a very particular kind. Mm -hmm. And that kind of evidence that uh, the evidence-based movement in medicine advocates for, it, it focuses mostly on the study designs, right? For example, you mentioned randomized control trials. I guess that another type of study or paper that would be considered gold standard would be meta-analysis and systematic reviews of literature, right? Exactly, yeah. So typically, yeah, in evidence-based medicine have this epistemological principle that they call an evidence hierarchy. So an evidence hierarchy is like a rank ordering of kinds of methods. And at the top of the hierarchy, they say are either randomized control trials or meta-analyses of randomized control trials. And then lower down on these hierarchies are other kinds of study designs. And at the bottom are things like um, appealing to physician expertise or appealing to background theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and perhaps also things like observational studies. Exactly, yeah. observational studies, according to evidence-based medicine, are somewhere kind of in the middle. Like they're better than mere physician expertise, but they're not nearly as good as randomized control trials. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that way of thinking about evidence in medicine started to become popular sort of in the middle part of the 20th century and then, and then really got off the ground in the 1980s and 1990s um, when a group of statisticians and epidemiologists got together and sort of codified the evidence-based medicine movement. Mm -hmm. but do randomized controlled trials have some limitations? I mean, and if so, should they really be the gold standard of evidence in medicine? Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me sort of back up a little bit with this question. So okay. in philosophy of medicine, it has become very popular and very trendy to criticize randomized control trials. So a lot of philosophers of medicine like to point out the limitations of randomized control trials and the limitations of meta-analysis. And I myself have been involved in, in that business. Um, and so the, but, However, those criticisms should be um, put into the context of a recognition of the, the good that randomized control trials were in fact try, like trying to achieve. Um, so um, the defenders of the evidence-based medicine movement were worried that there were many medical interventions that were being used in medicine that were supported only by very weak forms of evidence like clinic, clinicians' expertise. And when these interventions were, were put to the test, the randomized control trial, many of them failed the test. And so this is a sort of a common argument in evidence-based medicine that 
um, if we really want to know if some intervention is effective, we need to test it out with a randomized control trial. In the last 20 or 30 years, some critics have started to, to argue that that case is overstated. Um, but it's important to get clear on exactly how it's overstated. So some critics have said that randomized control trials have various kinds of limitations. So for example, the average randomized control trial employs a large number of criteria that determine what kind of subjects can be included in, in the trial in the first place. And those criteria are things like no pregnant women, no old people, no people on many other drugs, no children. Um, but we know as a matter of fact that those kinds of people tend to be the kinds of people that take most new drugs, like you know, old people with multiple diseases on multiple other drugs or children. Um, and so um, we also know that those very features like age, comorbidity, polypharmacy, like being on multiple other drugs, modulate the effectiveness and harm profile of drugs. So if we test a new drug using a randomized control trial and we find that it has such and such benefits and such and such harms, we uh, ought to be really cautious in making an inference that we will observe such and such benefits and such and such harms in the real world, like in the wild, precisely because it's going to be like people who are older and people who are sicker uh, taking those drugs. So that's like one example of a limitation on RCTs that hasn't been, it's now starting to become widely recognized, but um, it's still not, the, the, limita the recognition of that limitation hasn't been as widespread as it ought to be. Um, I, I could keep going and articulating many such of these more nuanced problems. Another kind of very basic one is the phenomenon known as publication bias. So publication bias is the publishing of results that are favorable to one's hypothesis or, or medical intervention and withholding of results that are unfavorable. And now this phenomenon isn't a problem with randomized trials themselves, but it's a problem with the context in which randomized trials are um, deployed and then published and, and interpreted. So we could have a set of randomized trials, which are all perfectly done randomized trials. But if only a subset of these trials are getting published, like namely the ones that favor experimental drugs, and then we go to make an inference about whether or not these drugs are beneficial or harmful, our inferences are gonna be biased because of the presence of publication bias. And as a matter of fact, many like regulatory agencies like the FDA, for example, doesn't adequately take into account this sort of phenomenon, publication bias. So the, the regulatory requirement at the, in the United States to get a new drug approved is to have two randomized trials that show that some drug is better than placebo. But if maybe like 50 trials are performed and two of them are published and they're positive and the other 48 are negative and they're not published, um, you can still get that drug approved. So it's an example in which like, you know, people are aware of the phenomenon of publication bias, but inferences and regulatory decisions aren't taking into account um, that phenomenon enough. Mm -hmm. So this, the short story is RCT, randomized trials, and meta-analyses of randomized trials are important. Uh, the development of the randomized trial and the, the, the championing of the randomized trial by the evidence-based medicine movement was an important step in the right direction for medicine. Um, and it's just that our inferences based on randomized trials are sometimes unreliable because of these issues with randomized trials. Mm -hmm. I understand. Uh, by the way, one thing came to my mind when you were mentioning age as a possible confounding factor. Um, what about gender? I, I'm not sure if that's something that is discussed by philosophers of medicine, but I would imagine that it is because it seems that, for example, when it comes to 
preclinical trials when people are testing drugs on animal models, for example, certain species of mice, rats, that they uh, tend to prefer um, male models because female ones, because they go through a menstrual cycle and there's hormonal fluctuations during the cycle, it's harder to work with them. And so, I mean, there are some people that say that maybe uh, the effects of drugs on women have been a bit neglected because of it. Absolutely. This is a, this is a huge problem. Um, so, it's, so that same reasoning about um, favoring male subjects in human trials uh, applies. So um, it's, it's a matter of fact that many randomized trials of testing drugs on humans have uh, focused on males rather than females. I would use the term biological sex rather than gender here. Um, but, um, but, so, but, the, but the point stands. And there are some really egregious examples of this. So for example, um, like statins to lower cholesterol are, are prescribed to both males and females, but a, like a large mountain of evidence is available for the benefits of statins in males and not, not nearly as much in females. Another egregious example of this, this one's wild, is um, there was a drug, flibenserin, which was supposed to be basically like a drug for low libido in females. It was supposed to be a kind of like female version of Viagra. And, um, some of the trials that were testing the, the harms of flibenserin were only including male subjects. <laughs> so, so you've got this drug which will never be prescribed to males. Like it will only ever be prescribed to females. But, if, but trials that were testing harmful side effects of the drug were on males and not females. So it's a kind of egregious example of um, this issue that you're that you're raising, yeah. But but was the the justification there the same that I gave in my question? I mean that it's harder to do studies on female models, animal animal female models, and women because of those hormone fluctuations and things of that sort. That's that's one issue. Is um, is hormonal fluctuations through the menstrual cycle. And another is um, ethical worries about unknown pregnancies, for example. So if you're testing uh, uh, an experimental drug, um, you don't want to include female subjects who are pregnant, but they don't know it. Um, and so th there are various kinds of defenses for this sort of practice. Um, but whatever the defense is either methodological, like appealing to hormonal fluctuations or ethical, like appealing to unknown pregnancies, whatever one's justification for the practice is, it clearly raises this worry about extrapolation, right? So whatever result you get in this trial, even if the trial is perfectly done, we want to know, can we take the results from this trial and apply them to the clinic? And this sort of issue um, ought to make us cautious about that. Yeah, so we've already talked about randomized control trials and I said in one of my questions that another type of study or paper that is considered gold standard of evidence in medicine are meta-analysis. So are there any problems there with meta-analysis? I mean, I would guess that because the same problems that we find in randomized control trials, if we do meta-analysis based on the control, randomized control trials that are published, then we would find some of the same limitations. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, this argument is called the garbage in, garbage out argument <laughs> against meta-analyses. So if it's the case that all of our randomized trials, I call this like the first order evidence, all of the randomized trials have some shared bias. Like they all, maybe they're suffering from publication bias or maybe the measuring instrument that's used in all the trials is the same, that measuring instrument is biased. Then whatever meta-analysis you do on these trials is also going to be biased in the same way. So that's one problem with meta-analysis. Um, what some critics have said, and I, I mentioned this problem in, in my book, is that meta-analysis is also what I call malleable. So trials are also malleable. What I mean by malleable is methods 
methods have lots of different kinds of nuts and bolts that can be turned in particular ways. Um, and the turning of the nut this way or that way um, can result in different outcomes. And trials are malleable and meta-analyses are also malleable. Yeah. Okay, so uh, another question that I have here is, what is effectiveness in medicine? Like, for example, applied to a drug or some sort of therapeutic treatment? What is effective, effectiveness? How is it measured? And uh, are these measurements uh, limited in some way as well? So there's a very standard distinction in, in medical science between this concept of efficacy and the concept of effectiveness. So and the distinction is like this. Efficacy is the property of some tested intervention uh, in the trial. Uh, so some, when you do a randomized trial and you are measuring the um, capacity of this drug to lower my blood pressure, we call that capacity efficacy when it's in the trial. Mm -hmm. But when we take that intervention and we use it in the real world, like the clinic, then we call that property effectiveness. So effectiveness is the capacity of some intervention to target a disease, either the causal basis of a disease or the symptoms of the, of the disease, and to thereby improve a patient's health in the real world in the wild. So that's conceptually what effectiveness is. Um, the way it's measured, this, raises, this question raises a whole bunch of issues that we've in part already been talking about. So the way it tends to be measured now is we make inferences about effectiveness based on efficacy. So we do some trial, we get some measured effect size, and then we just infer that that effect size is the effect size we'll see in the clinic, in the real world. So that's, as a matter of fact, how we're, how we're going about measuring effectiveness now. And for all the problems that we've already been speaking about, like subject recruitment, like the inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria of subjects and trials, the differences between those subjects and, and people in the real world, publication bias, for these kinds of reasons, we ought not make such a direct inference from efficacy to effectiveness. We ought to really be modulating our inferences. And so I give a bunch of arguments in the book that the modulation should be downwards. So if we measure some effect size in the trial and it's like this, and we wanna know how big is the effect size going to be in the, in the clinic, we ought to down, downgrade our estimates of effectiveness. So that's one, one way to answer your question. Mm -hmm. And another way to answer your question is via, I just mentioned this concept, effect size. An effect size is like a numerical representation of the capacity of some drug or intervention to help us, to make us feel better, to improve our health. And there are, there are a wide range of different kinds of numerical measures that are used in clinical research. And there are two families of these numerical mm, measures. One is called relative measure and one is called absolute measure. So there are some kind of mathematical nuances here that are, aren't worth getting into now, but, um, but in short, the most widely used family of measures are the relative measures. And we have some both empirical reasons and theoretical reasons to think that relative measures overestimate. They, they cause us, like regulators and physicians and patients, to overestimate the effectiveness of interventions. Absolute measures are better. They help us get a better handle on what the real effectiveness of an intervention is, and they tend to be much lower. Uh, so just to give you kind of one example, there are experiments that are done in which physicians are presented with evidence about the effectiveness of a new drug. And that evidence is packaged in three ways, either using only relative measures, using relative and absolute measures, or just using absolute measures. And then they're asked, 
how likely are you going to uh, prescribe, how, how likely is it that you're going to prescribe this drug to the appropriate patients? When physicians are presented with only relative measures, they're, they're very likely to prescribe. When they're presented with relative and absolute measures, they're a bit less likely. And when they're presented with only absolute measures, they're much less likely to prescribe. And in the book, um, and in, in some articles with some colleagues, I argue that the absolute measures are the only truth conducive measures. They're the only measures that get us like reliable indicators of just exactly how effective a drug is. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, let's go back to a more basic question. How do we classify something as a disease? Because that, that's another uh, contentious topic, I guess, in philosophy of medicine. I, I mean, uh, is there a set of criteria that uh, people have established to be the ones to decide that something that we find in patients is a disease? Yeah, sure. And just to be clear, so you're absolutely right that this is a contentious topic in philosophy of medicine, but it's also a contentious topic in medicine and society in general, right? So um, there are many controversial diseases um, yeah. and there are big debates between academics, scientists, physicians, patient advocacy groups, scholars of all sorts, journalists arguing like, here's this example of controversial disease. Some people say it is a disease. Some people say it's not a disease. And there are many examples of this. Like for example, addiction. Is addiction a disease or is addiction just a result of bad life choices? Um, or one example that I'm currently working on in my new book is about um, dysfunctions of sexual desire. Like um, there's a whole chapter in the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Manual uh, on um, disorders of sexual desire. Are these diseases or are they just kind of uh, aesthetic issues about a person's lifestyle uh, or maybe they're cr criminal issues like for example disorders of desire that involve hurting other people um, so medicine claims that these are diseases so one really common one now one arguably arguably the most common um, sexual dysfunction that that sex therapists see is low libido is low libido a disease it's currently classified as a disease by medicine but critics say that's not a disease that's if a person has low libido, it's maybe a result of the, the stress in life or an unhealthy relationship or an abusive relationship. It's not a result of a disease, it's a result of the social context. So this question about what is a disease is super controversial in medicine itself, in society, and, and therefore also in philosophy of medicine. And what philosophers of medicine have tried to do is come up with a general theory of disease such that if we had that general theory, we would be able to referee these controversial cases. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've read in your work that there are several different approaches to this question of how we should classify diseases. There's, for example, naturalism, normativism, hybridism, eliminativism. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about each of those? Okay, sure, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll mention this. I'll describe them briefly. Um, so, so naturalism basically says diseases are just dysfunctions in our biology. So um, type 1 diabetes is a disease because it involves the beta, cell, beta cells of our pancreas just not producing enough insulin. And we need that insulin to modulate our you know, blood sugar levels. And if we don't have uh, beta cells in our pancreas producing enough insulin, we get all sorts of really, really terrible symptoms. So naturalism says some condition is a disease if it involves some departure from normal biological functioning. That's very intuitive. I mean, this is like how physicians are trained in medical school, medical scientists tend to think of diseases this way. It's an extremely intuitive way of thinking about thinking about diseases. Normativism says something completely different. It says diseases are conditions that are disvalued for one reason or another. So here's an analogy. Imagine all the 
you've got some garden and there's a bunch of different plants growing in your garden. We call some of those plants weeds and want to get, get the weeds out. But it's not that like nature doesn't just come packaged into like weeds and non-weeds, right? It's like we disvalue weeds for whatever reason. Like they're ugly, they're, they're spiky, they spread throughout the garden. We don't want them there. Um, so it's not that nature comes packaged into weeds, non-weeds. It's we who do the evaluating of the plants in the garden. We decide those things are weeds, those things aren't weeds. Normanivists say that's, a bit, that's what diseases are like. Diseases are some state, some condition in our body that we disvalue. Um, so now they could apply the same reasoning, they, they could apply that reasoning to, for example, the example that I just gave, like why is type one diabetes a disease? Well, because it comes along with all these symptoms that we reasonably think are really terrible. Um, and if we don't treat those symptoms, um, well, we end up into, in a really bad state. And it's, it's the badness of the state that matters to the normativist, not the underlying biology. Um, of course, it might be the case, and it typically is the case, that the badness of the state is a result of the underlying biology, but those conceptually come apart for the normativist. And so like one test case we can imagine is for example, um, some departure from normal biological functioning, which is forever asymptomatic. Right? So it turns out that most men die with some prostate cancer inside them. And that prostate cancer never caused any symptoms and never would cause any symptoms. We know this because we, do, we can do autopsy studies on men who die from other causes. Right? So men who die from other causes, most of them, more than 50%, have prostate, some kind of prostate cancer growing inside them. So is that a disease or is it not a disease? The naturalist would say it's a disease because there's some departure from normal biological functioning. And the normativist might say it's not a disease because it doesn't cause any harm. There's no badness associated with the condition. The hybridist tries to take the best from both the normativist and the naturalist. The hybridist says a disease has both a biological basis and a harm basis. So it's necessarily the case. So if you've got some condition which only has one, like some biological basis or some harmful basis, then it's not a disease. And the reason why the hybridist thinks that is like, there are counterexamples to both the naturalist and the normativist. So for example, the normativist seems to be on kind of strange grounds for a lot of conditions. We think that there are many conditions that are harmful, but we don't think that they're diseases, right? Like um, if you like, I don't know, gangster rap, or if you like country music, like there you have, you're in some condition that's bad for you. Um, but it's not that you have a disease, like some affection for gangster rap. It's just that you have some bad aesthetic taste, right? Um, and so what's the difference between having bad aesthetic taste and having type one diabetes? Well, it's the type one diabetes is like this internal physiological dysfunction. So the hybridist tries to salvage the best of both the normativist and the naturalist. And then finally, one, the kind of fourth position, it's kind of a fringe position, but it's worth noting is that it's called eliminativism, which just says, look, we can get on with the business of medicine without a general theory of disease. And there are some various arguments for this in the, in the literature. And I think many physicians are themselves attracted to this position. I, I've seen some psychiatrists, for example, argue that, no, we don't need a general philosophical theory of disease. We can get by without it. My own view is that that's misguided because the general concept of disease is in fact really important for communicating to patients, for training medical students, for deciding like which, which features of our dysfunctional human biology healthcare systems should pay for to treat and which ones shouldn't they treat. Um, and so controversial decisions about whether or not some particular condition is a disease or not uh, have really like practical consequences for society, for communication, for training, and to resolve those controversial cases, or at least to understand them, we need a general theory of disease. We need the concept of disease. Yeah. Do you fall in any of these four camps? I mean, is it, is it that one of them is more appealing to you than the others or not? Yeah, yeah. So I, I am uh, I'm sympathetic to hybridism. So I think that the main counter-arguments against normativism and naturalism can be resolved by hybridism. Um, and so hybridism is the kind of 
best of both worlds, so to speak. I, I defend that in, in, in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, another question. We've already talked about RCTs and meta-analysis and other sources of evidence in medicine. Um, I've read in your work also you talking about the plurality of reasoning strategies. And I think we can connect it with that conversation that we had about sources of evidence. So what is it about? Okay, right. So um, there was maybe getting, getting, explaining this idea is maybe um, best done by reference to a little example from 20th century history of medicine. So um, there were some observational studies that were published in the 1950s suggesting a link between smoking and lung cancer. Mm -hmm. The epidemiologist who was responsible for these uh, case, case control studies was this famous epidemiologist, Sir Bradford Hill. And so he said, look, we've got some evidence that smoking causes lung cancer. And the statistician, famous statistician, Ronald Fisher said, actually, your evidence isn't so good because it's not a randomized trial. So Fisher said, look, the, this correlation between smoking and lung cancer can be explained by some hidden genetic factor that causes people to both smoke and get lung cancer. So it's not that smoking causes lung cancer, it's that there's this hidden genetic thing that causes both. This is a kind of classic worry about non-randomized studies. Fisher was one of the kind of developers of the randomized study. And he was saying, Bradford Hill, you, you've got a problem here. And Bradford Hill responded by saying, okay, right, Fisher, you, you've got me there. Like this is, this is not a randomized trial, but there are all these other reasons that I can cite that suggest that smoking causes lung cancer. For example, the more that people smoke, the greater the probability of them getting lung cancer is. There's like a dose response relationship between smoking and lung cancer. That was one argument that Hill made. He also made a kind of argument from analogy to other kinds of toxins. He said like, look, we know that there are some toxins in cigarette smoke and we know that some toxins cause cancer. Therefore, the toxins in cigarette smoke could be causing cancer. Um, and so there was this kind of argument from analogy, argument to like background theory. And these kinds of arguments became codified by Bradford Hill into a set of like reasoning strategies to think about causal inferences. Um, and so the general idea is that it's very intuitive, it's very natural for us to, when we're making an inference about some causal relation, to appeal not just to statistical evidence from a randomized trial, but to other kinds of evidence as well. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and do you agree with the strategy or do you think that maybe some of the other ones proposed by the movement of evidence-based medicine are better than this one? Right, yeah. So I, I do think that um, we ought to be appealing to such a plurality of reasoning strategies when we're making an inference about the effectiveness of interventions. Um, those, inter those inferences can go either way. And we could be making an inference that this intervention in fact does blah, 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 or we could be inferring that the intervention doesn't do blah, blah, blah. And um, those inferences ought to be guided by um, this plur plurality reasoning strategies. Um, there's, a, there's a funny example in the medical literature to illustrate this. Um, so there was a trial done, uh, published a few years ago, and the design was like this. Um, the, the scientist took a group of patients who had been in a clinic like 10 years prior and randomly allocated some of them to an intervention group and some to the control group. And the intervention was retroactive intercessory prayer, like praying on behalf of others backwards in time. And then he measured different kinds of outcomes and found that um, patients in the retroactive intercessory prayer group had some like some beneficial effects compared to subjects in the control group. This was published in a very important medical journal. 
And of course it was a spoof, it was a kind of joke. I mean, the idea, nobody was, nobody believed that retroactive intercessory prayer worked because of the results of this trial. And when we ask ourselves, why not? Like after, the, after we see this, you know, it's a randomized trial, so it's the gold standard of, of, of evidence. So shouldn't we believe the results of this trial? The answer of course is no. And when we ask why not, the answer is, well, because implicitly we are already appealing to this plurality of reasoning strategies, including consistency with background theory. None of us are willing to believe in, I mean, no reasonable person should be willing to believe in retroactive intercessory prayer um, because for, for that kind of intervention to in fact work would require violating like extremely well-established laws of physics. Um, and so we ought not, we ought not conclude that. Um, and so, so this is a kind of funny example, which just illustrates that implicitly or explicitly, we already are appealing to, and we ought to be appealing to this plurality of reasoning strategies. Mm -hmm. Can we say that this plurality of reasoning strategies perhaps complement some of the limitations that we mentioned about randomized control trials, meta-analysis, and other things like that. Yeah, exactly. That, that I think is exactly the right way to put it, is we can appeal to other kinds of evidence to kind of fill in the gap that randomized trials leave, and vice versa. So, you know, as I was saying sort of the start of the interview, many philosophers of medicine have enjoyed the sport of criticizing randomized trials. And I've also been involved in that sport to a certain degree. But I think it's also important to remember that other kinds of evidence have also has their own problems and the benefits of randomized trials can be used to offset those other problems as well. And so in short, I think basically to kind of deliver a, a summary of, of that line of thinking is that we need both, right? We need both evidence from randomized trials and we need appealing to other kinds of knowledge like background theory, knowledge of mechanisms by which interventions modulate our physiology and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have just one last topic to cover today in our conversation uh, and you have an entire book written on it. What is medical nihilism? Okay, medical nihilism is the view that we ought to have low confidence in the effectiveness of medical interventions and particularly novel medical interventions. So um, you read in the newspaper that there's this new drug that does blah, blah, blah. And medical nihilism says, even after reading that report, you ought to have really low confidence that the drug in fact does blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, I mean, it's just that, I mean, the, in terms of approaching let's say, since we talked a lot about sources of evidence, does it have something, or does it have something to say about that as well, or not? Well, so, so when I was describing medical nihilism there, I was describing the kind of conclusion of one big argument. Okay. Um, so the, 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 the book is, you know, it's 12 chapters, and each chapter is, um, is offering uh, a kind of focused thesis, and the, all those theses come together as an argument for medical nihilism. And some of the chapter level arguments are about problems with research methodology. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, we have really good reason to believe that RCTs and meta-analyses are malleable, to use this term I mentioned before. Uh, we know that the medical research context is shot through with biases. And so that is one of the arguments in favor of medical nihilism. So if you read some publication that suggests that some drug does blah, 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 but we also know that all the evidence, all the methods that generated the evidence that suggests that this drug does blah, blah, blah is biased, then that ought to downgrade our confidence in that finding. So that's one kind of argument in favor of medical nihilism. Another argument kind of family of arguments, if you will, that we haven't spoken much about so far is based on this concept that I'm calling in the book magic bullets. So magic bullets are interventions which are truly effective. Like they're just amazing medical interventions like penicillin for many bacterial infections or insulin for type one diabetes. Like 
these interventions, which are basically like in the history of medicine, they're just miracles. And um, like the, you know, like the polio vaccine, for example. And so in the book, um, I give an account of um, what I mean by magic bullets. These are interventions that target diseases with a high degree of potency and a high degree of specificity. And then I just argue that most of medicine doesn't have interventions like that. So most interventions fall short of that high degree of potency and high degree of specificity. And that's for a bunch of reasons. So one, one kind of reason is the complexity of the pathophysiological basis of most diseases. So like a bacterial infection in causal terms is extremely simple. There's just some thing in our body that shouldn't be there. And we just use an antibiotic to target that thing. And then we get rid of it. Or like scurvy, for example, it's like this disease, like your body doesn't have enough of this particular thing, the vitamin C. What's the intervention? Give us some vitamin C and then we get rid of scurvy. It's like, it's super simple. So there are diseases that have this very simple causal basis. But as a matter of fact, in most of Western medicine today, most of the kinds of diseases that we're trying to target don't have such a simple causal basis, like blood pressure, cholesterol levels, heart disease, most psychiatric diseases, um, we, we're far away from knowing really anything at all about the causal basis of most of these diseases. And so we can't target those causal bases. Another kind of reason for the lack of magic bullets is um, the way that dr most drugs operate on our normal physiology. So we, we tend to think that drugs are kind of like, like a lock and key mechanism where like a drug is like, like a key and it fits into this lock in our body and just like turns things on just the right way. And some drugs work like that, but most don't. So most drugs have this much more diffuse and much more complex um, uh, set of causal interactions in our physiology. Um, so anyways, there are, yeah, there are, that's another family of arguments for this general thesis of medical nihilism. Basically um, when we're asking, we read some report in some newspaper about this like new breakthrough drug that's gonna just revolutionize some little, some area of medicine. And we ask ourselves, really how likely is that? The answer ought to be like pretty low because by now we're accustomed to the idea that there are just very few such magic bullets in medicine. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So uh, I know, and you've already mentioned this, that you're writing a book on the sciences of sexual desire. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about it? And if you already know when it's going to be published or not? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I certainly hope it will be published. And uh, when, um, it, well, first I have to finish writing it. So it won't be published for a long time. It, it, this were, it's a couple of years out, certainly. Um, this is a, like a long, slow project. It's a very intellectually rich project because the sciences of, there are so many sciences that study sexual desire, anthropology, psychology, zoology, genetics, um, laboratory physiology. Um, so there are many sciences involved in studying sexual desire and there are a variety of questions that these sciences are trying to answer. Probably the most fundamental question for these sciences is, is there a nature to our sexual desires or are our sexual desires the result of cultural and social forces? So of course, many of our desires, like our normal day-to-day -day desires are a result of social and cultural forces, like the desire that some people have to drink Coca-Cola, for example, is clearly the result of something about marketing. <laughs> um, but described at another grain, like why do people like sugary sodas? Maybe a kind of natural type explanation can be given, like our evolutionary ancestors uh, survived often by eating very sugary fruit on trees. And so there's this aspect of our biology that is drawn to consuming sugary fruit and soda manufacturers have just tapped into that. That's why they're so successful. And so it looks like we can give both naturalist kind of answers to this question about, is there a nature to our, our desires and also cultural sort of answers. And that sort of issue is at play in the nature of our sexual desires. So, uh, some people say our sexual desires are the result of our evolutionary history. Um, and other people say, no, our sexual desires are so 
much conditioned by both our psychological state and that itself is conditioned by social and cultural and, and moral kinds of considerations. So that's like the really, really big fundamental question. And then there are like more particular specific versions of that question. So for example, are the sexual desires of males and females similar or different? So it's a kind of platitude in society today that they're very different. And that platitude is built into some scientific theorizing. So for example, evolutionary psychology, like a big part of evolutionary psychology is premised on this notion of parental investment theory, which holds that sexual desires of males are much stronger, more libidinous and more promiscuous than sexual desires of females. But what some critics say is that any evidence that we have for that theory is itself conditioned by or modulated by different kinds of social forces, like moral kinds of constraints. So if you just go around asking people like, um, how many sexual partners have you had or how many do you want to have in your life? You're gonna get answers which are very different from between males and females, um, not just because there's real differences, but also because those differences are masked, uh, similarities and differences are masked in a variety of ways because of moral kinds of considerations. Um, another big question that, the, that some scientists are asking and many cultural commentators are asking is, um, are our sexual desires consistent with monogamy or intention with monogamy? Some people say, like, look at this species of mole rat, they're monogamous. Um, <laughs> some people say, look at this, you know, particular primate species like bonobos, look how wildly sexual they are, look how promiscuous they are. And they're our closest living relative, therefore we're, we're not monogamous either. And again, critics of this say, yeah, but human sexual desire is so psychological, so cultural that um, inferences from animal species are not as reliable as they're often made out to be. So there's all these kinds of questions going on in, in these sciences. And my book is an attempt to describe the, those kinds of arguments and offer some philosophical theories about like the nature of sexual desire, for example, that can help referee between some of these disputes. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So Dr. Steginger, just before we go, where can people find your work on the internet? Oh gosh. Uh, so I have some, many of my published articles are freely available on um, different kinds of internet platforms like one that i use often is academia.edu and another is phil papers so if you just googled my name and one of those terms academia.edu or phil papers one would be able to get uh, free access to um, many if not all of my published articles and my two books are available on any of the standard book um, ordering websites and there's a paperback version now of medical nihilism. So there's a cheap version of medical nihilism. And my other book is an introduction to philosophy of medicine, which is much more tuned towards like a kind of uh, educated lay audience. And that's also like quite, quite cheaply priced as well. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Stegenge, as I said at the beginning, it was a real pleasure to have you on the show. And I hope to have you again here with us when your new book is out. So, Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on the show. So thank you very much, Ricardo. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with top academics and scholars from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal, I also have links to that in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please leave a like, share it and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perger-Larsen. 
Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Kintis, Ruth Gervoz, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windager, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, and Yannick Punter. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rujewski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.